Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Pavilion, where we're celebrating our 30th year at the Cannes Film Festival. We are delighted to present the IndieWire's Screen Talk Live panel, featuring Eric Cohn and Ann Thompson. Be thinking about some questions for an audience Q&A at the end of the podcast, and if you like what you're hearing, subscribe to Screen Talk on iTunes. Please silence your phones and join me in welcoming our panelists to the stage. Thanks for that lovely intro. It's so nice to be back here. I feel like we never left this room. Because when they teased this thing, they used the image from last year with this backdrop. And I was like, yeah, we basically just kind of live here and talk about Cannes movies all the time. But it's funny because a lot of times people talk about the Cannes Film Festival as sort of like a Groundhog Day where you come back and it's just the same thing over and over again. The same auteurs, the same kind of conversations about cinema and then we go back to our real world in our case in the United States where film culture is a very tiny piece of this larger pie but this year I feel like it it felt different and yet I'm not really disappointed and I don't know where you're at about this now Anne but I've been thinking about all the different buckets that can is supposed to fulfill and satisfy and all the different needs and it really has um come through on the actual programming of the great films, even if the auteurs weren't all here. Many auteurs, Adiar, Denis, uh, Asayas, uh, and among, you know, Cuaron because of Netflix, all sorts of people did not come. But even so, the films have been glorious. But can cannot exist on films alone. It has to have a market. The market is weak. It has to have celebrities there's not a whole lot of celebrities here. The paparazzi have nothing to do on the red carpet. They're miserable. They're not making a living. Good. This is not good. Um, Let them I struggle. never thought I would live to be feeling sorry for the paparazzi. Um, and, then, and then you just don't have the kind of um, meat and potatoes uh, things for the journalists who have to send home good stories to their editors. Yeah, I love that part of it, though. It's sort of like, what do you say about that brilliant new film from somebody you've never heard of in a country that's completely underrepresented, and then suddenly you have to figure out a solution to that problem? IndieWire is very good at that, and I think we, we know how to do that, but it is, I still think it's a challenge. Um, I love these films, but can cannot exist on the competition alone. It cannot survive on the competition alone. And the real question we have right now is how much is can reflecting a very changing universe and how much can it adapt uh, to sustain itself? Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing right now is that the fall movie season is going to be very, very dense no matter what your kind of area of the field is. And the pressure in the United States to kind of use the fall as a launch pad for prestige films, hopefully to give, may turn them into Oscar movies, essentially, is much higher than any kind of prestige factor you'd get from Cannes, whereas Cannes seems to have... The calendar has kind of, changed. The it. calendar has changed. It's, it's a, for some reason that I can't quite define, the, it used to be that you could carry these films over over the course of the summer to the fall, and, it would, it, and a Cannes launch actually was an important, effective thing. Something has happened where it, it is too risky, it is too scary, the... Um, 
changes that Frameau made uh, having to do with uh, changing the press schedule, maybe he made them too late. Um, because so many people are afraid to come here. Spike Lee is having a great time. Spike Lee's movie, The Black Klansman, played like gangbusters, and everybody is happy for him, and he's happy, and he's saying, yeah, this is great. I came, and they liked me. Well, they that really was a classic, liked me. That was a classic can- the classic can experience is you're excited for the auteurs, and you hope they deliver, and then the insert last name of filmmaker here disappoints or does their, their same old thing. Or and- maybe we have Lars von Right. Do you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for this. Well, but he's Lars out of von Trier so is safe. out of competition. He, my argument is that you can argue uh, that he has the right to make this movie. He has the right to express himself as he sees fit. Um, he can kill all the women, mutilate all the women he wants in a movie. But if you, um, was it a good idea? for Talifuimo to fight to bring this movie to Cannes? Did he come out ahead on this? I think it's a really interesting question because there are so many different variables at play here. You have a board that controls many different aspects of the French film industry that Cannes is meant to reflect or is seen as a reflection of. But then you also have this tendency to feel like Cannes has some sort of higher calling that is above what we often refer to as political correctness or or standards that have less to do with, say, the aesthetic impulses of a particular filmmaker and more to do with society at large. It has very openly resisted this, even when it has to do with things like trying to represent more quality films from across the spectrum of different people. Obviously, there could be way more women in competition, and it's completely inexcusable. Does any of that mean that we should be not including a film that, to some people, is a very good movie? I, if this movie was a, a turd, which I don't think it is, this would be some a do. bigger conversation. Some and do. They always do. Um, yes. I mean, it's a provocative, uh, uh, controversial film, no question about it. And, of course, I think Frimo was assuming there would be debate and there would be a lot of excitement around it, and that's what he needed. He needed that so desperately. What a that, double that he bill, booked though. it. What a double bill with Spike Lee, right? Because Spike Lee delivers this movie, auteur filmmaker working at a high level, his best movie in years. Uh, it's, it's going to continue to, to benefit from the reception it got here throughout the year as it opens in the summer. That same night, you have Lars von Trier, which will open at some point in this fall and may need to kind of reboot after all this canned stuff. But it's, it's kind of fascinating because it, it's two different sorts of extremes. But the, in the world of public relations, I would suggest to you that in the year of the 82 women on this red carpet uh, protesting, uh, you know, Time's Up, fighting for Time's Up, making a big statement, that is the memory of this can. That is the image that everyone will carry away with them. Is that the year to have a, an auteur mutilating women and throwing a breast on a windshield? This is why I think it validates the decision to take the film out of competition. That is as, as much as you will ever see, at least in this particular context, for the people running this festival to make some sort of uh, negotiation with the current climate is, is to take it out of the, the need for this jury to have to answer questions about it, to even think about it in relation to the narrative of the competition. It's its own thing. It exists. It, it had its moment. 
and it doesn't necessarily need to be sort of lumped in with conversations about many of the other films that are here. You're making very fine distinctions that I'm not sure are out there in the world, and, and I think the takeaway is different. I think this is going to be an argument that's going to continue for a while. And, and I, or I, and this movie's going to absolutely be buried in a pile of ignored, uh, failed efforts... It actually entered, unlike a lot of stuff that's here, it entered the festival with distribution. It doesn't have a release date yet, and I'm sure there are lots of conversations going on about exactly how to handle that. And I think it is sort of ironic because that is a film that if, if it launched here and was looking for a buyer, there would have had to be some really complicated conversations about exactly what needs to happen. IFC could not have anticipated the climate on which this film was going to arrive when they got involved with it over a year ago. So I'm sort of curious about some of the other films that are actually in competition here because back home we tend to think of foreign languages as one category and it's really hard to get people to go see foreign language films and a lot of buyers are reticent to do that. This year, that's kind of all they have to work with. So This is true. So I, um, everybody knows the opening night film, which I'm sure a lot of you got to see. Um, Javier Bardem, Penelope Cruz, two major movie stars at the height of their glory, and one of the great world-class filmmakers, Oscar Fajardi, working in Spanish. Which he doesn't speak. <laughs> Indeed, and he did such a good job. This movie it played okay here. It played well. It was picked up quickly uh, by Focus Features, and it's already opening in France. It's like right after Avengers Infinity War. It's doing so well. It's the number two movie in France. It opened at number Huge one. Huge movie stars, very kind of engaging, melodramatic plot. I, mean, it's I gonna, think it'll do well yeah. back in the States, too. Yeah, it was a good and in lots of back. countries around the world. It, it, it wasn't universally beloved, but it launched well enough, and it started at the head of the festival, so it didn't have anything else to compete for in terms of noise. That was a very interesting one, especially with Focus Features coming in and buying it, which bodes well for that company coming off of a successful well, They have season. the Black Klansmen as well, so mm-hmm. they're having a very good festival, and they have the Vim Vendors Pope Francis movie as well. Right. And then you had something like Sony Pictures Classics, which is one of the sort of, you know, uh, kind of fixtures of, of, of figuring out foreign language films for, a, for an art house crowd in the U.S., for the first time in a while, comes in without a filming competition before the festival. And very early on, there's a film that we, at this point, haven't seen yet. We're going to see it tonight. They bought that for a report. The Nadine Labaki film. Something like a $1.3 million. But, you know, most people roll their eyes at that and say it was significantly less if you really look at the deals or whatever. Anyway, it was, it was a lot of money relative to most of our lives. And what's That's interesting... That's a lot of money for Sony. Let's put yes, it that way. It, it's, it's, it says something. It, it says means they it, really wanted they it. They really wanted it. They really wanted it. So, so that's sort of business as usual for that company. I thought it was interesting to see the range of, of deals that were going on, that you had A24, which was just called out in the New York Times right before the festival for not releasing foreign language films. You know, hey, you guys are great. You do cool stuff. People notice you, but you're still not taking that risk. Bought a foreign language film, Gaspar Noe's Climax, although in some ways it's, it goes beyond foreign language because there, there is some English, but also he, he is sort of a brand that doesn't get... Getawise is a foreign filmmaker. Provocateur. So, yeah. He's sort of like Lars Light in a way. I agree. That way. Put that in a trailer or something. But then you even had John. Lars Luke. Light. Eric yeah. Cohn, yes. IndieWire. I like you it. You heard it here first, folks. 
Um, and then Jean-Luc Godard gets picked up by Kino Lorber, which did his last that was, film. You could expect that. Could from, expect that. They had a number of their favorite auteurs in the festival, and you could assume they were going to be ending up releasing them. So in spite of the challenges of the market, there, there are still active buys. Neon bought a really wacky genre movie called Border that I liked quite a bit. Um, to me, what's interesting is that when you see these sales going on, even in a year of, say, lower-profile films, it kind of gives you a sense that there is some degree of business as usual. It just doesn't have the same sort of gigantic hype around it because every day doesn't bring some wave of highly anticipated new movies. The one that I'm really curious about, that I want to talk to you about because I just saw it finally, thank God, uh, because I'm this is always why we moved the panel, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> he he I, needed to see the Coreda. <laughs> I had to see this Coreda film because you, when you come to this festival, because of the way the competition is spread out, no other festival has it like this where this is sort of suspenseful narrative every day. Which one are we going to see now? How does this change the race? And you live in fear of missing the one that wins, which happened to me one time when I missed four months, three weeks, and two days, and I just felt like I wasted all my time here for a day or two, and then I realized I saw some other really great movies. And but, you could catch up with it. Yeah, you do, and it's not the end of it, it's but that's the what end happens of the world. in this environment. So, so I did get a chance to see uh, Coriada's film, uh, Shoplifters, and I agree with what's been said, that it's his best film. It's got, I'm not going to spoil it, but one of the best movie twists I can remember in recent memory in the context of a very perceptive kind of slow burn drama, which is usually his M.O., really striking. I could see it winning the Palme d'Or, and I think it needs it for buyers to realize that they can do something with this movie. It's an extraordinary movie. The critics have all, I think, been pretty unanimous in, in loving it, and I experienced it um, in the big theater, having heard nothing about it, and absolutely lost my... Uh, the tear ducts flowed. You do uh, cry sometimes. I like to cry. I'm a crier. Um, I resist. It's, it's, it's an intimate family drama that unfolds very slowly and reveals itself as it goes. And it's also, as anyone who knows me knows, um, parent-child separations are just automatic. Turn on the valves. And this has many of them. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Not giving away too much. No, no, not giving away too much at all. But I, but I think it is interesting because we're getting close to that finish line with the Palme d'Or. The jury will convene a day earlier than usual this year. And um, it's just a really fascinating process to kind of speculate about because you can always be very, very wrong. It's, there's no exact science to this. And I'm going to call you out on something. But I try. <laughs> I'm going to call you out. So Eric is running this ongoing, uh, here's where the competition is uh, kind of thing. And Tracy every day now. it changes. Uh, and and you, you started off very convinced that they would go with one of the women directors, um, the Ava Husson movie. And I was shocked that you were so confident about that because... It isn't very good. Well, so why would they give that. it an award? Well, there, there have been... I mean, I was not the biggest I Daniel Blake fan. Things win this here. This is a, an example of how you and I argued about something where I said this movie is so emotional that the actors... Remember, it, it isn't critics that pick the Palme d'Or. Right. It's and, like and, and the Oscars. It's, it's people who are in the industry, filmmakers, actors. They come from an entirely different place from the critics. Well, and, the so it doesn't matter what that Screen International grid looks like. I, I, it, it really is irrelevant. I do think it is interesting, though, because you, I've, I've been on a jury at Cannes. I was on Critics Week last year with... Uh, an actor and a major filmmaker who had films in competition here before and stuff. And I think there is something... It, it's not entirely true to just say that critics don't do this because everybody has a critical gene, especially if they're 
very close to the art of the thing that they work on. And I think it really kicks into high gear when you spend such a dense period of time watching these different kinds of movies. So people have very sharp opinions about things that they're thinking about critically. And they're also, these are veteran movie people. I mean, let me put it another way. You are more likely to get excited about a 55 minute 3D tracking shot or whatever that is in this Chinese movie that you were admiring. That's a different category altogether. That, you know, you're more likely to get to, to, if there's some incredible structural thing that's so cool about the Koreda, you know, you're, you're a writer. And you look at things in those kinds of ways. You're also someone who's looking for something to hang a whole review on that's exciting. Always looking for hooks, The people who are on on these juries, especially the actors, and this is what they said at the opening jury press conference, they're looking for emotion, which is why Daniel Blake won. But I do think Girls of the Sun... Angie Penn. Girls of the Sun. uh, Anybody here see that movie? It's, 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 a, it's a kind of overly sentimental in parts, but it, it, I think, leaves an impact on a lot. A lot of people that I talked to were not necessarily uh, proud of it, but they were emotionally affected by it and, and found the action to be very involving. And the logic that I use for our palm odds is that we only include films a- after they've screened. We're not going to put something on there in anticipation of, of one thing or another. So we have to have that experience at the festival. So at that point in time, that was day two or three or something like that. It was certainly above everybody knows, in my estimation. And, and, uh, I think the that Egyptian everybody film, knows might so. have some chances at some acting, some acting awards. Right. Um, so. And, and I, I actually um, agree with you on the Correda that that's a strong, strong contender um, because it sort of it has everything. But Burning is also extraordinary. Love it. And Love there's it. a shot in uh, Burning um, from, from Lee Chang-dong. It has a a woman dancing naked against a uh, magic hour sunset um, who is so sad that I cried. And it's one of the most beautiful shots I've ever seen in my life. Lee Chang Dong is, is this brilliant director who hasn't made films nearly enough. And for him to adapt this very brief Haruki Murakami short story the way that he did, I think, is a real testament to his power as a storyteller because it's a very short story and it's a very faithful adaptation but it's two and a half hours long so he he sort of finds these small moments in the story and draws them out to these really poetic kind of extremes Um, he's won things at this festival before and it would be surprising if he didn't when if that film didn't get something i feel like he's the kind of filmmaker the actress yeah juries discover people seem to be leaning toward the actor who was new to me but I, th- I thought the actress was extraordinary. Yeah, and, and so ultimately what's going to happen is that you, this jury is going to have to sit down in a room and they're going to talk and they're going to talk and then they have to vote. So there, there, it does come down to a vote and there's a well, deciding well, vote from the president and so forth. So Looking at it, is, it's very interesting because you have the politics of the women on the jury and of someone like Ava DuVernay, who obviously has a very strong point of view. So you have to assume that the black Klansman is going to get in there somewhere or that a film directed by a woman might get in there somewhere. But there's a lot of people. I mean, Denis Villeneuve or, or Andre Zviagensev, uh, they could go another way. You hear stories about things. You hear about the year that uh, you know, all these people wanted to give the movie to Z- uh, that film, uh, Leviathan. 
You've practiced it as much as I've practiced to pitch upon. I knew you were going to do that. But who should be? He was on a jury here, actually. I've heard stories about the year that his film Leviathan, there was a major contingency in the jury that wanted to give it the palm, and they wound up with a screenplay prize as sort of a consolation thing. I've heard about the year that Tree of Life won because Olivier Assayas gave some sort of passionate speech, even though Robert De Niro was technically the president. So this kind of fantasy role-playing, it comes from a real place. And when you look at this year's jury, I mean, it's like, what is Kristen Stewart going to say? You know, what, what are these people going to say? They're really Who's going gonna to... Who's going to have sway? Yeah. And I think you know that Kate Blanchett will. Yeah. She's a powerful personality. Who wants to stand up? Who is so respected. But ever, there are a lot of powerful people yes. on that jury. Very, very smart people and very different sensibilities. And you can trust those sensibilities. They lead to interesting places. The fact that a pitch upon won the palm uh, for Uncle Boonmi, the year that Tim Burton was the president of the jury, made so much sense. Of course he was going to go for somebody like that. You know, I mean, and, and it's not enough. It is nine here. people. Yeah. So, so things can go a lot of different ways. And, and I think it's really interesting, too, because the Palme d'Or is not the Oscar, but it certainly is maybe number two in terms of prominence in film awards. I would say that it has no impact whatsoever on anything. It's a prestige. But in terms of prestige, well, let, let's put it, to you, put it to you this way. You win a Palme d'Or, you die, it's in your obituary. Not if you win an independent is, spirit It is award. a huge honor, and I, I know I was being a little, yeah. Um, it's a huge You'd honor. <laughs> no, of course, but it is also, um, what I really mean is that it doesn't have that much impact in the United States on the box right. office. There, there have been things They can that, put it in the ad. Yeah. They can add cred. They can have those little palm fronds. Yeah, but they'll do know. that even if it was programmed here. Right. So that, that right. is true. Right. And it's unfortunate. And, and, and Deepon, yeah. did, did winning the Palm d'Or have much impact on Deepon? Not in the United States states but it, it, i do think maybe it was sort of the last step to make jacques odiard one of the most popular filmmakers in france who is now making an english language it's good film, for the auteur yeah it is so, so there are some serious benefits winning for a, it. but also i mean kirsten dunst won best actress it had no impact on poor melancholia well it'll be interesting know? because there is such a range of filmmakers this year different people stand to benefit from a palm in different ways Corey Ada is already making his first non-asian uh, film he's making a french film right now and uh, is, is already considered a world-class auteur. Somebody like Alice Rohrwacher on her third film, this would be sort of the thing that could catapult her to that next phase. One so. thing that is going on in the United States in Hollywood is that the agencies, the uh, producers, the studios, all the different distributors are hungry for women directors who are good, and they are really looking for them. So if somebody gets a prize here yes, we should meet with that person and we should find out what they can do. And then the question is, do they want that? I mean, Alicia Rohrwacher, who still lives in the Italian countryside, that very close to the area you see in this movie, does she want to go make a Marvel film? I don't know. I think Ava Hussan would. Maybe she won't win the Palm, but the can slot still That helps. could be where these, these films really have an impact. Um, I got the sign that we should open up to some questions. Um, if there's some, a mic... Um, raise your hand, everyone. Okay, sir. Can we bring the mic to yeah, this gentleman? Yeah, let's get the mic. Uh, we one have sec. The, uh, they're, they're, the they're recording thing has to happen. Otherwise, people listening on the treadmill will be very frustrated. <laughs> and they matter so much to us. There it is. Merci. Is it on? Can you see if it's on? 
We need waiting music. I'm going to point out there's a terrific old-school Spike Lee poster on the back wall there. Must be when Do the Right Thing I have to say that Spike is so happy. And it was fun. I talked to him yesterday, and he, I was here with Do the Right Thing back in the day. This is how old I am. And it was fun to see him in such a good mood. Go ahead. Thank you. Hi. Okay. I'm, I'm John, by the way. Um, very interesting you started out with the cyclicality or where Ken is right now. I mean, what are your views on getting a time machine five years where you think this festival either could be or should be or will be? Big question, I know. Showing Netflix movies? I mean, it's just sort of inevitable that something has to be worked out in terms of the changing face of distribution. And this so the question is whether the French institutions of exhibition production and um, distribution, which is a closed circle where they all feed each other, and they've been, uh, by law, it is in the law that they have this 36-month uh, window. Uh, as I understand it, they really are working to change that law, and they are going to pull it back. It won't be as uh, it won't be the mere ninety days that we have in the United States, which seems so small by comparison. And it still yawns large in our world, where exhibitors and distributors are really fighting about this window even now. But it will change. This law will change. They're negotiating it right now, and they're going to by by next can there will be, a, according to my sources, um, a different law. Now, does that change the situation with Netflix? No, because they're still going to demand that Netflix meet their window, whatever that window is, even if it's shorter. And in the United States, Netflix has a one week theatrical run. They go day and date. There's no waiting. They believe in serving the consumer. So I don't see Netflix gonna being at this festival anytime soon. It's something is going to have to shift here because the, if, if this festival is going to continue to fight for its relevance, it's going to need to be able to represent films of a certain level of quality irrespective of, of who happens to be producing them. So I, I anticipate at least in five years we are going to have other kinds of ways of talking about this, whether or not it's still an issue in terms of the program. And then one other thing that occurred to me is I think you're going to see uh, a really interesting shift in terms of the international dimension of the programming because there are so many co-productions now. It's going to be really hard to tell, you know, is this a British film or an Italian film or a French film? And everything that's being set up in the market now is coming from so many different directions, and you're going to see a lot of Asian films. There were a lot of Asian films this year. Apparently, so. the market was most robust uh, on the side of China and Korea. They were buying lots of stuff. They have a big market to fill. So they were actually driving the market in Cannes, which is only going to continue uh, going forward. But I still think there's going to be a lot of issues with studios coming here, with filmmakers being willing to take the risk to show their films here, even with the changes that have occurred. Um, And it is possible that Cannes, as the granddaddy of all film festivals, as the one that uh, we revere, and believe me, we love coming here, and we love seeing these films, it just strikes me that the um, constituency that is best served by Cannes is the film critics and that all the other ones are not necessarily being served and that it will be a smaller festival with a smaller imprint. It will still exist, but I don't know if it will ever reach the heights that uh, we have become accustomed to. And maybe that's a good thing, maybe scaling back to some degree to allow 
critics to sort of have a, the, a festival that is on this level. But will they be sent here if there's nothing to write about? You gotta fight, man. I slept on a lot of couches. That's kind of the way it goes. Any more questions? Can we... Thank you so much, and thanks for talking with us today. So Jennifer Manor, I'm a documentary filmmaker, and just a couple of days ago in this very room, there was a very good panel with um, some producers, directors on documentaries, and they really talked about how hot the market was for documentaries, and we, we've seen Mandela, the Mandela Trial movie, which was excellent, Whitney's playing here, but I haven't heard you talk about that market at all and where you see that's going. I think that was That's interesting. Really cool. I don't think of Cannes as a documentary market as much as Sundance, for example. Um, and it, it, I did uh, see the Pope Francis documentary, which I think will be very popular around the world. Of course, Focus has that one. Uh, Whitney was okay. Um, it, it's a good, straightforward uh, telling of her life. Uh, I like Kevin McDonald's work. It doesn't quite match the levels of something like Amy. Um, yeah. It feels a little imitative, but, I, but it's, it's interesting because there was this news hook, a revelation about uh, Whitney Houston being abused as a child that comes out of the film, and uh, the, the fact of the matter is that her legacy is still being reckoned with, and the movie does a good job of consolidating that, so I think it could have a life. The fact that Roadside Attractions is putting it out shows that they see that. That's a company that is a theatrically oriented company, so, and it's a talking head documentary, you know, but I think the broader question about the market for documentaries is very interesting because back home we see things like um, you know the jinx that kind of transcend that limiting notion of what a documentary is almost like for a while it seemed like documentaries and foreign language films were these stigmas in our culture you know you, you were either in or you were out and now I think partly because of Netflix but also Netflix just innovation. Netflix has really done a great deal for documentaries and they've changed the form as you said. Yeah and it's, it's, it's it, they're cheap to produce you, you need good access. You can do them as series you can do them in all so sorts many of ways. different ways that are not limited by true. what television dictates. So I think that is actually having a, an impact on the market is that there just is a, a greater interest in, in real life stories and uh, an awareness that if you can pick up on one of those stories, it can be as commercial as a narrative feature. It just needs to be positioned appropriately. So it is a good time to be a documentary filmmaker, no question. No question. Anyone else? Hello. Here, that here. gentleman. Try to cover the full spectrum of the room. So, yeah, you start and then we'll, we'll work our way over. Uh, so, so last year, I remember um, at Cannes, there was the film with uh, Lupita and Rihanna that was birthed from Twitter, and it was sort of closed on here. And then this year, the, the big international deal was the 355 spy thriller. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, one was, was created by Twitter or was sort of birthed on Twitter. The other sort of capitalizes on the political moment and doesn't even have a script, if I'm, if I'm right in thinking that. Can you speak to that trend at all in terms of um, films that have yet to even be ideated? Well, they always do that here. I mean, it's, it's very common, and it's just sort of... A, they often don't have scripts, but in the case of 355, it had Jessica Chastain. So that's and just she had already assembled an entire uh, cast, an extraordinarily starry cast, and put on a big show uh, with DDA on top of it and a photo op and, and everything else. So she knew what she was doing. Um, she had been on the jury here last year, and I think Jessica Chastain is an interesting example of a woman uh, who isn't settling for being a movie star. She 
she's using her clout to be a producer and to make things happen and to ride this. And she uses Twitter very well, too. So she understood instinctively how to make an event out of Cannes and turn it into a movie. And it was picked yeah. up by Universal. Yeah, and I think what you're picking up on is that story is not commercial. Hopefully the stories are good and you hire filmmakers and so on and so forth. It's getting name attached, showing that there is an audience for this thing, whether it's in the Twitter case, you know, that there was some sort of social media interest that you could use as a starting point, or in the case of, of this Chastain project, that it's her investment, the narrative, the, whatever, the political moment, all that stuff that kind of tells you that if we get the right kind of people involved to kind of take it further, the enthusiasm will be there. And, I, and that's kind of fascinating because it, it tells you that being commercial doesn't necessarily mean you have to be good, but it, it doesn't hurt to be good. So the starting point is figuring out what the commercial hook is, and then all the other stuff gets filled in. So we'll see with that one. It should be interesting to, to follow. Hi there. My name's Seth. I work in Australia as an ENT executive and have for the last decade. I'm wondering if you had an English language drama between 6 to $12 million, what now you think the best festival to launch in would be? You mean to, to get it sold before it's produced or after it's made? After it's made. That depends. It depends on the kind of movie it is. Yeah. You know, it, budget if, if it's a high-quality yeah. Oscar-contending you know, you want to get into Telluride or, or Venice or or Toronto. Um, Toronto is more um, um, accessible to a wider range of movies that can do well there, even if they aren't at the very top of the critics' charts. Um, so it's 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 more forgiving. You can have uh, a success there without being um, perfect. Uh, is that a, a good yeah, way? Yeah, I would also it? say that. In the U.S., festivals have a different... In North America, festivals have different kinds of identities. Sundance is more of a discovery festival. So if this $6 million movie is, is made by a hot new talent who's about to hit it big and, and, you know, if the right people see it, could sign some huge agency or something like that, going to Sundance, maybe, you know, trying to put it into competition and win the grand jury prize, that's sort of the stamp of approval that would catapult this movie to the next level, hopefully. Uh, that doesn't necessarily happen. Cannes is not a discovery festival in the same sort of way, although last year the Florida Project went to Director's Fortnite and really broke out there. So that was sort of a weird movie that ended up being the most commercial American film here, and it was a very smart kind of launch pad for it. So it really kind of depends on what the end result winds up being because there are different kinds of commerciality for these things, and you just have to understand you know, what sort of crowd is going to have the best response where the media is, where the buyers are, all that kind of stuff. But and I would suggest to you that the most important thing you could do would be to get the right PR firm and actually trust their judgment on the right festival to go to. Somebody because that will be you can honest. make a mistake. You yeah. could end up going to every little film festival and end up nowhere. And, you know, making those choices is a huge part of opening a movie like that. Totally. Having a good sales agent, having, having a good publicists who will, who will tell you either critics are going to love it or critics are going to hate it or it's going to divide people. You need will tell to you know so that. Much. Yeah, because go, taking a competition slot here is not necessarily an endorsement that you want if the movie is going to get booed or Remember Southland like Tales. Exactly. Bringing so, films here that, are, that aren't finished you yeah. know, is a big risk. And yeah. I, think, I think part of what's going on is that a lot of people are less willing to take those risks than they used to be. They used to just take a flyer here sometimes. It was so important to get into the competition. Now they see, I think, more clearly where it can really be uh, too much of a risk to take. 
it is, it is. And, and I wish more people would figure out a way to take those risks because it would be more exciting sometimes to see those films that divide people, to see the films that you know you're going to be defending all year round but don't necessarily work for everyone, but just means the fall will be more interesting. But it's also because the market is so tenuous and, and so unpredictable, and, and it's a, it, by virtue of having a smaller market, you can't take as many risks. And there it is. Sad it, story. Let's wrap it up. Thank you, Thanks Eric. Thanks for coming out, guys. <laughs> Always good to see you.